Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hello and welcome to The Bunker Daily. I am your host, Alex Andreu. Banking was conceived in iniquity and born in sin. Bankers own the earth, take it away from them, but leave them the power to create deposits, and with a flick of a pen, they will create enough deposits to buy it back again. Those are the provocative words of economist and former Bank of England director, Josiah Stamp. We hear a lot about central banks with inflation as high as it is, but what is the rationale behind those Byzantine institutions which have significant influence over our lives? From where do they derive their democratic mandate to the economic levers to which they have sole access? And perhaps most important of all, are they doing a good job? My guest today is here to help us towards some answers. She's an economist specializing in central banking models and is currently head of research at Positive Money Europe. Welcome to the bunker, Uri Ntuya Batsaihan. Thanks, Alex. Happy to be here. Uri, let's start with a bit of basic background. What is the central banking model? A central bank is a public institution, and um, I would like to here highlight the the public aspect. Maybe we can touch upon that later. That uh, generally manages the currency of the country uh, in the textbook, controls the money supply. It's also a lender of last resort. Uh, When banks uh, run out of liquidity, then they supply liquidity. And it also acts as a bank to banks, let's say, right. lending to banks. And as of uh, after the great financial crisis, also they have a supervisory role. So they watch banks and uh, kind of monitor systemic risks. Right. What are the main critiques of the system, as it were? Because you said, you know, they, they control the issuing of money. When Garfield created the Fed in the state, his main... Uh, anxiety was, as he said, whoever controls the volume of money in any country is absolute master of all its industry and commerce. Is that true nowadays? It's actually quite strange mix of democratic legitimacy accountability, to some extent, transparency. Of course, they're not elected officials. They are appointed technocrats, Mm. which means they're not democratically elected uh, immediately. But to some extent, it is the case because, as you said, they're all, all too powerful. So in a sense, politicians give this kind of independence, as it were, to central bankers and not to kind of tinker with that power. Uh, right. So they limit themselves. And then throughout history, it's it's kind of a very long history in central banking, throughout different periods, the independence has been interpreted kind of differently. And of course, depending on, on, a, on, a, on a time that we look at, uh, they are 
either you know kind of uh, following their mandate or um, or they're or they're viewed as as too powerful. For example, today, is there a spectrum of independence, or, or are they all pretty much the same? Does, for instance, the Fed occupy the same sort of position as the Bank of England? Of course, they they are supposed to be independent institutions, and in fact, independence is quite enshrined, and there are levers and mechanisms put in place that ensure their independence. But how independence is practiced, for example, uh, could be could be different. So, for example, Fed issues reports, right, to monetary policy reports, and they also sometimes testify to Congress. For example, right. ECB has uh, quarterly monetary dialogues with the European Parliament. So there are mechanisms to ensure independence, but at the same time, demand accountability and transparency. Mm. Mm. And, And how unusual is the European Central Bank, the ECB, in being a supranational public body that stands outside national structures? Yeah, very good question, and that's um, it's a it's a very interesting concept, right? I mean, we haven't had in economic monetary history something like the eurozone, so it's a European kind of monetary area that has one independent central bank that sets monetary policy for 20 countries in the euro area. It's a, it's a novel experiment. It has its negatives and positives, but it has to be said that such an experiment is unprecedented in history. Mm-hmm. And uh, at the same time, it makes quite a complex structure to understand. Yeah. I mean, I'm Greek, so uh, during the Eurozone crisis, one of the constant criticisms was that Greece could not in any way moderate its monetary policy to suit what it was going through because it was centrally controlled and and because economic conditions were very different, for example, in Germany than they were in Greece, one organization couldn't really respond to both things. They couldn't pull the lever one way for Germany and another way for Greece. So it sort of keeps finding a, a common denominator that is maybe not satisfactory actually to anyone. Is that a fair criticism, do you think? I think you're going for one size fits none. That's the biggest mm, criticism, yes. <laughs> of course, and the divergence of uh, economies in, in the Eurozone. So the kind of root cause of the problem is that, yes, you kind of gave your monetary power to uh, independent single central bank, but there is no single treasury in the euro area, which makes it very complex. Uh, you have 20 different uh, treasuries and one single monetary policy. And um, monetary policy in the in the euro area is uh, what they say is our policies are not targeted in the sense that fiscal policies are. Uh, But this is kind of one of the criticisms we at Positive Money try to put forward is that the instruments and kind of one size fits none is a real problem. You need more targeted, let's say, instruments and targeted policies. So so your preferred solution is to make the... uh, 
to make the policy more targeted rather than to elevate treasury functions to the same European level, because that would also solve the problem, right? If you just had one EU, Eurozone rather, treasury, as it were, that determined tax and and fiscal policy, that would also solve the problem in a way. Oh, definitely. That would solve the biggest problem. Right. <laughs> that would be uh, that would be really an ideal world, uh, ideal scenario. But I think we kind of all know why you wouldn't give up the power to yeah. tax, for example, yeah. or social yeah. policy to a single authority in the yeah. in the eurozone. Uh, but you're absolutely right. Uh, the economy should be kind of based on on the monetary pillar and the and the fiscal mm, pillar. Mm, and the fiscal mm. pillar is is basically is, is non-existent, right? <laughs> yeah, it, it feels almost like we are sort of halfway through European integration at the moment on the, on the uh, financial front, and, and that's why we're experiencing the, the problems we are. Um, can I ask you something else, Uri? Please. Do you, th- do you think central banks have recovered from the global financial crisis? I mean in terms of reputation, or is there still a lack of trust over what many consider very lax oversight and complete lack of foresight uh, to predict what was coming back then? So after the global financial crisis, central banks assumed this function of a supervisor uh, right. So, for example, the European Central Bank directly oversees around 113, but the list changes from time to time, systematically important uh, banks in the euro area because mm. banks have cross-border functions. And I think maybe the reputation of the of the banking sector I wouldn't say it, it uh, totally recovered, but um, in a sense, uh, there is a period pre-global financial crisis and post-global financial crisis. And what I can say for sure is that after global financial crisis, central banking has become far more complex with unconventional instruments, with QE, with, for example, uh, uh, lending operations uh, neg- at negative rates. For listeners, QE is quantitative easing, which is basically the creation of more money. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. Um, do, do you think they have dealt well with the current inflation crisis, for instance, on the whole? Like if you were, if you were marking them, which are seen to have done well and which not so well? I think this goes back to our discussion on the lack of instruments and have this one-size-fits-none kind of policy. So Mm. mm, central banks think, okay, we have interest rates, we um, manipulate interest rates to achieve a certain outcome, but the current inflation crisis is a supply-driven inflation crisis precipitated, among many other things, by uh, fossil fuel crisis, really, fossil fuel Mm. prices um, that are creating upward pressure on inflation. So in that sense, increasing interest rates have quite limited influence. Yes, I accept that. But at the same time, I think if you look at the forecasting, most central banks thought this is going to be temporary. It's a blip. It will go away very quickly. And they were wrong in that forecast. I mean, that was a big forecasting error. 
maybe they wouldn't have been able to do much about it anyway. But <laughs> the point is, they didn't see it coming. Um, I, we can speak for hours on central bank forecasting. Um, I think forecasting has become more like a wish <laughs> that they want to see <laughs> rather than uh, a goal that they want to reach. <laughs> but that said, um, it's it's a it's a very hard job. But so, for example, um, in the in the period of quantitative easing before the uh, inflation crisis, or yeah. what well, we would like to call fossil fuel-driven uh, inflation crisis, central banks also forecasted uh, reaching the 2% target, for example, in, in Europe. Uh, but the core inflation has been hovering around 1%, so, so quite low. And then we can question to what extent forecasting does work. High interests are one of the things that's been cited by our Prime Minister Rishi Sunak recently for slowing the pace of net zero measures and cancelling big infrastructure projects. He's basically saying inflation is so high, all this stuff is too expensive, we can't do it. Um, are high interest rates actually a threat to climate action to that kind of project and how can that be mitigated how can we make that less of a threat to the things we need to be doing i mean let's think of july last year interest rates in the eurozone were zero percent and as we stand it's at four percent it's an unprecedented rise in interest rates in such a short amount of time that said high interest rates are a threat to to green transition mainly because projects that uh, involve green transition uh, renewables for example energy efficiency they have a very high upfront cost which means if the borrowing costs for these projects are now prohibitively high and mm. uh, also at the same time the cost of you know the cost of labor the cost of capital is is also very high so this means delayed transition and on the energy efficiency side it really relies on the economies of scale and in order to reach the scale that we want to in order to kind of create this turnaround in transition uh, we need a lot of investment large investments small investments you know, even kind of uh, personal uh, projects, yeah, 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 right? Yeah. Now it's going to be very expensive, so you're going to put it back on your priority mm, list mm. of spending. Uh, we at Positive Money promote something called dual rates, which means have lower rates for green investment projects and have higher rates for fossil fuel. That's kind of the only way that you could encourage green investments. Oh, I see. That actually would stimulate it in a disproportionate way in many ways because there is a market for investment, right? You know, there is money out there that needs to be invested. So if you created a differential rate for green projects during high inflation times, you would actually supercharge green projects. You would boost them because even more investment money would go into them. Absolutely. I mean, that's a smart idea. Why aren't they doing that? Why aren't they listening to you? 
<laughs> I know, right? <laughs> We're trying our best here. <laughs> it just makes common sense. Also, it will help them to reach their mandate, uh, inflation mandate, and it's not going to have this kind of huge upward pressure that the fossil fuel inflation is exerting mm. on, on mm. inflation, right? And at the same time, um, it's becoming uh, expensive for governments to borrow in the long run, which means, as Rishi Sunak said, they're delaying big public infrastructure investment projects. And yeah, that's also not a good thing. Yeah, I mean, does a does a more does a more volatile inflation environment does it make it even more important that big projects don't drag on for decades? <laughs> because Absolutely. it seems to me that one of the solutions to this problem is to have very tight project planning, so that once you decide to do a thing, you actually do it in a relatively short window of time. Uh, so you don't have to hedge your money for, you know, unknown unknowns in the in the future, you just get on with it and do it. And Absolutely. I think what a lot of big projects have been plagued by is that we announce it and then two years later we do a consultation and then three years after that we put the tender out for loads of you know small companies to do the bits that we need rather than really driving projects through. Absolutely. And in that sense, the central bank has kind of, let's say, the ammunition, the bazooka, that the, the liquidity that is needed to drive these big projects, uh, similar to, for example, dual rates that go through the banking sector. We advocate, uh, why not green bond purchase program? Uh, mm. ECB has been buying, for example, a lot of green bonds from supranational institutions, such as the European Investment Bank. Um, yeah. And it's become very beneficial to, to borrow at a lower rates. So why not, why not do these things, you know? Yeah. So during times when it's cheap to create credit, really go out and create credit for the stuff that's essential, basically. Be more proactive, Exactly. Yeah. For example, uh, during the COVID pandemic, uh, ECB uh, responded very fast uh, with the pandemic emergency purchase program, for example. So in terms of in times of crisis, central banks are capable of creating, you know, tools and programs to, to mm. support the economy. Uh, but we just wish the climate crisis is, is treated as, as an emergency crisis, as the pandemic crisis. Yes. I, I recently spoke to Larry Jacobs, and he says that a lot of the dysfunction going on with central banks at the moment is down to the fact that many, especially after the global financial crisis, are responsible for both monetary policy and also regulatory oversight. And he thinks that the two should be separated, that it's dysfunctional to have the same body um, basically acting as the the bank's bank and also as the overseer of their propriety and financial health. What, do you have thoughts on that? Um, so, for example, post-global financial crisis, there has been a lot of uh, concerns, let's say, uh, how can one body control uh, things? Uh, but uh, in case of the ECB, it's something like you need to have some kind of a Chinese wall in between the monetary mm -hmm. policy and, um, and, the, and the supervisory functions. But we do think that essentially it is 
absolutely necessary to monitor systemic crisis in the Eurozone. And also because it is a, a, a monetary area of, uh, co- uh, consisting of 20 countries, right? Um, and especially when we are trying to tackle with uh, climate crisis, if you think as a systemic crisis, right? Uh, then uh, ECB has the the kind of the tools and uh, let's say the carrots and the sticks, uh, as it were, mm-hmm. to push the banks towards uh, not net zero. In that uh, in that sense, uh, so yes, I do think that it works quite well in in the ECB context. Of course, provided they are sort of provided separated. they are separate yeah. exactly. Uh, there are even advantages stemming really from that. Um, and as we're faced with the climate crisis, it becomes a crucial function to mm. to look at systemic crisis. Okay, so l- let me gently push against that and say, if banks then are responsible for regulating the financial health and um, systemic ethos of financial institutions, then shouldn't they also be more vocal when banks make windfall profits, for instance? Should they not have a more active role in regulating what some see as profiteering? For for instance, what we have seen in the UK is that increases in interest rates will be passed on very quickly to loans, mortgages, all the financial products that banks offer, but they will be passed very slowly to savings accounts. Um, And that, you know, in that differential, banks make billions of pounds. Um, And and so is there a perception developing that central banks basically underwrite the wealth of the rich and basically entrench inequality, increase inequality by doing that? So in terms of profiteering, in fact, uh, yes, <laughs> as, uh, as we go out of the territory of unconventional monetary policy, and especially interest rates have increased so fast in such a short amount of time, uh, mm. there is uh, a number around 100 and banks made around 140 billion in, in profits in less than a year. And it's, uh, it's just kind of windfall, risk-free, uh, purely accounting trick-based profits. Mm. Uh, what we advocate at Positive Money Europe is, first of all, this should not be passed down as, uh, as checks on CEO bonuses, for example. And, uh, this profit should be then passed down to savings deposits, but we don't really see that at the moment. Um, so in a sense, central banks should be very careful in, in kind of navigating this reputational um, risk. And, uh, and we do think that they have significant levers at their disposal to, to change the narrative, to do something about this profiteering. And then there are many proposals on the table. Uh, but so far, we do see a reluctance to tackle the profit issue. Mm. Have central banks, in a way, become a convenient scapegoat for for governments? Uh, This thing that sits over there that can be to blame if things go wrong, or they can point to uh, when they don't want to do something to say, that's not our job, that's their job. And how can we uh, improve the way central banks discharge of their mandate? In this day and age, it's becoming increasingly hard uh, to 
hope, let's say, for central banks to meet its mandate, to meet its narrow mandate, because mm, mm. in fact, uh, everything has effect on, on prices. Uh, from geopolitical crisis to to climate crisis to even you know like uh, supply chain uh, disruptions here and there. Brexit. Brexit, indeed. We you know we saw Brexit over here have a huge effect on prices, and the bank has nothing to do with it. Exactly. So there are lots of factors that are influencing inflation, right? So that makes it very hard for central banks to meet their mandate. And because it's becoming such complex uh, task, we at Positive Money, of course, we advocate for increased tools. Uh, and instruments that the central bank has its disposal to meet its mandate and not only kind of have in a narrow central banking sense manipulation of interest rates that have mm. very uneven effect across different countries, across different income groups. Uh, it affects us all very differently. So, for example, more more, more, more targeted policies uh, that are needed, more more green policies, dual mandate. You can't, you know, can't have a hammer it's you almost as yeah, it were yeah. you need surgical tools you know at this point <laughs> yes urin to you thank you so much for being so clear on a very complex subject thank you thank you so much for having me remember there's a new bunker pretty much every day so if you like our work you can and should support our work for as little as three pounds a month on the funding platform patreon just search for bunker podcast patreon real wealth is tangible things produced with tangible effort. American scientist Chris Martinson once observed, money created out of thin air requires no effort. So when such loans are used to acquire real assets, something has been exchanged for nothing and someone is getting screwed. This is Alexandreou in the bunker saying over and out. The Bunker was written and presented by Alex Andre. The producer was Liam Tate, with audio production by me, Simon Williams. The managing editor is Jacob Jarvis. The group editor is Andrew Harrison. With music by Kenny Dickinson and artwork by James Parrott, The Bunker is a Podmasters production. Podmasters.